Welcome to Wilson in Maine, The View from Wingate, a podcast bringing the expertise of Wingate University to the wider world. I'm Jeff Frederick. One would have to search far and wide to find someone pleased with the current state of political culture in America. Partisans on several sides have staked their identity on a swirl of cultural, economic, and international positions, convinced that those whose values differ are un-American, backward, socialist, or fascist, depending on who's affixing the blame. Intra-party squabbles are increasingly public, with stalwarts in both parties convinced that litmus tests for party membership, be they doctrinal or personality-driven, are to be championed above all big tent approaches, where policy differences could theoretically allow for issue variants within a set of general principles. It harkens to the quote of Will Rogers, the humorist and folklorist, who once noted, quote, I am not a member of any organized political party. I am a Democrat. Rogers' off-quoted witticism about his party's feuding is matched only in the frequent bleats from the other side of the aisle about rhinos, Republicans in name only, whose views, inclinations, or preferences apparently make them, in the minds of some, insufficiently equipped to be card-carrying members of the grand old party. The big questions, other than documenting the current state of American politics, might be along the lines of these. Was it always this way? And does it have to be this way? On the first part, good people can disagree, but the divisive elections of 1800, Thomas Jefferson's first win, and 1828, Andrew Jackson's first win, do headline an argument that politics has always been something of a rough-and-tumble sport, where candidates or their supporters might stretch and strain the truth a bit to pick up a vote. Even George Washington was accused of buying votes when distributing 160 gallons of rum, beer, and cider to voters on Election Day in 1758 when running for the Virginia House of Burgesses. Perhaps Election Day and access to a few extra tankards of grog were unrelated. On the second part, does it have to be this way? Again, folks might not interpret the evidence differently, but the presence of money, media, lobbyists, and parties make it difficult to imagine that a kinder, gentler election season is around the corner. But to give us deeper and more meaningful insight into elections and parties and whether political discourse can or ever was particularly civil, I thought I'd bring Dr. Joseph Ellis and Dr. Chelsea Kaufman into the conversation. Welcome, y'all. Hello. Hey. So let's think about this political parties and factualism. At least back in the founding generations, uh, it can be plausibly argued that it was thought to be uncouth to be in the middle of a political party or, or dedicated to a faction. How did political parties become so critical to political identity? I think that one of the things we need to consider is, well, first of all, even if we think that political parties are uncouth, even then, um, if you look back to like the Federalist Papers, they never said we shouldn't have parties at all, but rather, okay, maybe we should try to control their negative effects. But getting more into the deeper question of, okay, well, how is it not just that we've controlled the deeper effects and allowed them to do the best things they do, which is maybe organize us into different camps of what we would like to best see out of our government in a effective and organized manner? What ends up happening is that people tend to tie sometimes their partisan identity to other social identities they have. So as an example, a person might think, I'm a union member and the Democrats support union members. Those are people like me. And so therefore, I am a Democrat and I should support them. And then for the various identities we have, we might go about these things. 
Plus, these tend to get very embedded through socialization. It's common, for example, for us to, when we're a small child, maybe have our first foray into politics with maybe, I know mine was like the class presidential mock election (laughs) in second grade. I mean, certainly my mom had taken me to the polling place with her to vote before or something like that, but I didn't really know what was going on. You'll go home and you'll say, well, parents, who should I vote for in this class presidential election? Uh, My parents turned me into a political scientist by telling me to research it myself, but many parents will say, in this household, we're Republicans or we're Democrats. They support people like us. And maybe list out some of those things that are the people like us, whether that's union members or Christians or middle-class people, something like that that is crucial to their social identity. And so these things tend to get perpetuated and become really core to who we are. So the combination of some need to organize and some thought that there could be some breaking on the negative aspects of this combined with identity, and all of a sudden political parties are popping up and getting a little bit stronger. Exactly. Thoughts? Political parties are an outgrowth of democracy, allowing people to assemble with who they want to assemble with, which is allowed in the First Amendment. And as Dr. Kaufman eloquently spoke on, it's right there in the Federalist Papers. Liberty is to faction as air is to fire, an element without which it instantly expires. And he wasn't saying he was against uh, liberty or fire, right? He was saying that you have to be able to harness it in some way that to make it constructive. So we can constructively put groups together like a party to effectively do things for us. The problem is, is that parties sometimes don't always do effective things. They think only of themselves or only of their faction. And when that occurs right, then it's not really a marketplace of ideas and diversity of thought, but instead a way to win elections. My view of parties has always been parties exist to win elections. And uh, you don't do that necessarily by always creating a marketplace of ideas that people can choose from. It's really interesting. We think, you know, the current issues are so topical and they're so important that they empower people. But issues in the 18th and 19th and 20th century have always gotten people to organize and to align with their identities. And and then parties just became expected, right? At a certain point in time, it became part and parcel of your upbringing or of your region or of your geography or of your of your beliefs. But we kind of settled on two parties, although at different times in American history, there's been third party or parties. Why do you think we've mostly gotten into this either or mode? And what are we missing by not having more parties? So this is the political science comparative politics graduate school question we all get. It's Duverger's law. It's single member district first past the post elections. In other words, the way we've organized our political system in the United States makes it very hard for third parties to compete. You only typically need a simple majority to win elections. And because it's winner take all, meaning essentially get more votes than your opponent in most races and you can win. So it sets up this dynamic uh, that makes it very, very difficult for third parties to compete. Whereas multi-party democracies in Germany or Israel or basically anywhere that has a parliamentary system, but also maybe proportional representation, you don't have to win elections. You just have to get a proportion of the vote. So that's the political science answer. But there may also be some historical things, too, to consider. What do you think? Yeah, I was going to add into that a little bit is, OK, so as you mentioned, we have had uh, minor or third parties emerge in the past and occasionally be successful, especially at the state level in elections. Additionally, this kind of goes back to at the beginning when you were introducing us and you talked about factionalism within parties. One of the things we see happen historically is if a kind of third party movement starts to gain traction, oftentimes in part due to the system we have where they're not going to be electorally successful, 
the two major parties will take notice to this. So, for example, if they're championing some particular issue, for example, maybe something like environmentalism and the Green Party, then the two major parties will say, oh, no, maybe we should pay more attention to that issue. Then, therefore, they attract those voters back because they've just adopted the stance of this attractive third party. That attractive third party can no longer compete because they have a major party with the same stance to compete with or with a um, alternative stance that voters also appeals to some other voters. And so it becomes very difficult. They sort of become co-opted into that party. This is why you'll often see people who will say, I'm a libertarian, but they're running as a Republican candidate, for example, is they're more likely to win the election, but then they can still hold those principles and beliefs. And then that's where we get these different factions, even within the parties. And if the argument is that parties exist to win elections, or perhaps to win elections and to acquire money, which helps them to do that as well, then committee assignments and distribution of committee chairman roles and allocation of resources really are predicated on being a member of the winning party. And so uh, makes it hard to add other parties. What would y'all beg, borrow, or steal from other countries' political systems that you think would make a difference in some reasonable outcome here? I would not beg, borrow, or steal a lot. Um, I think there is some wisdom to some of these multi-party democracies to allow certain issue-specific parties to exist. But if you think about something like the rise of the extreme far right in Europe, that's been a result of multi-party democracies in part. You know, that all they have to do is win 5%, 7% in some cases, and they can win seats in the parliament. Uh, you know, a two-party system has in, in some ways not allowed uh, that to happen. Or since we have kind of catch-all parties, those ideas that exist sometimes get watered down or drowned out in the two major parties. The, the other thing I would say uh, is the United States is unique in that it is very large geographically, very large population-wise, and very diverse. So when we say things, or when I hear people say things like, you know, Finland, they've got it figured out. Well, it's true, but Finland's much smaller. It's got 4 million people, and it's not diverse at all, right? So it's, it's kind of easier in some ways to do democracy in that way. And I would say this, like, we don't have a perfect democracy, but I don't know that I would trade the diversity of experience that I get in the United States for, you know, some of the the, the manifestations of why politics works the way it does in other places, even places that I admire, like Estonia or Finland. An eternal optimist like me would say that for all the flaws of American democracy, change has happened and might continue to happen, maybe not at the rate or pace that some people would like. What about y'all? Um, what about you, Chelsea? Any thoughts on somebody else's idea that could be brought into our fold? Yeah, so I think I have a pretty similar view on this too, Dr. Ellis, um, in that, okay, maybe there is something great about other systems. I ask students this sort of thing all the time, like, would you keep the American two-party system and the way that we handle elections, or would you switch to another example we've talked about in class, like Germany, for example? And, you know, we have this kind of discussion in class, and these types of things we just talked about come up. It's like, okay, is there more room for a particular political party in one system, or, oh, okay, well is there going to be a different sort of problem that arises in that system? And I also think we need to keep in mind, again, what are the characteristics of that place? I don't think you can take the system and of one country and just port it over into another and expect it to work because you have a different culture, you have a different history, you have different groups of people who want different things out of government. Um, and we have, as noted, this vast diversity of experiences and backgrounds and histories in this country that's going to make it difficult 
to port certain things over. But I guess if I had my one dream and I don't know exactly how we'll achieve this, I just I wish we would vote in higher numbers like we see in many other countries. I think that I wish more people would get involved in politics and that our system would do something to promote that. When parties and campaigns become so important, then the outcome of elections really drive the coverage and the contemporary view of what's happening. And that leads us to think about what were certain seminal elections, either from the congressional perspective or from the executive branch perspective. In the state, that means the governor's race. Obviously, nationally, that means the president. Do you have a particular election or presidential election that you think is particularly noteworthy that you enjoy weaving into class discussion or thinking about in terms of its overall impact? I think one thing I always like to talk about with students, because oftentimes they're less familiar with this history, is I'll be showing them, say, a timeline of American presidential elections and how each of the states have voted. And I loved to see their reaction whenever I show the flip of the South from Democratic to Republican um, in basically 1968 and to show how you can have change over time. Um, And not necessarily to say that change over time is good or bad, but rather to say sometimes people think we get kind of stuck in a certain pattern with politics and it's inevitable that it'll continue. And so to them, it's very surprising to see, well, the patterns used to be very different and that there was something that happened in this case, um, the civil rights movement and the alignment of the Democratic Party with those issues that changed the way that people voted and which parties they supported. And I don't know if that's my favorite election or the most interesting election, but I think it's a very important election in understanding sometimes things change and we can learn interesting lessons about history and about the present day from that. Yeah, the 1968 election really is important for a lot of what happens right before it and then what right happens right after it. A really interesting time of change. What about you, Joseph? Growing up in Tennessee, I was fascinated with the election of 1824 and 1828 um, because you know, the idea that someone from Tennessee, even though they were born in North Carolina, could be a president was just wild to me. And then when I learned about the other two folks from Tennessee that became presidents, that was wild. But, I, you know, Andrew Jackson is certainly a polarizing figure. And as you grow older, you kind of learn a lot of things about him that you, uh, you certainly don't like. Uh, the thing about that election is that's fascinating is, you know, he's the first frontier president, the first president, you know, not born in Virginia or or Massachusetts. Um, he had, you know, no parents that raised him. He sort of raised himself in, in ways and kind of by hook or by crook was able to to make it to the presidency. So the, the election is fascinating to me, not to romanticize Andrew Jackson, but the idea that the presidency could sort of open up to different types of people, people that weren't, you know, intimately aligned with the founding of the country. And, you know, again, I think that speaks to something about the American idea that that anyone could become president. Um, and, you know, these kind of famous stories now of just holding a big party at the White House with a big block of cheese and, you know, tearing up these you know, precious documents and, and lamps and paintings and sculptures and, and having a big party, which is sort of silly. But on the other hand, I think speaks to something that, that would continue to occur in the United States, which is this sort of division between you know, people that go and get the proper education and do all the right things to become president like George H.W. Bush, right, or like John Adams. And then the idea that, you know, someone that just kind of kicks down the door occasionally like Andrew Jackson can become president as well. And that's, I think, fascinating to me and not necessarily true in other places. I think 
to me, what's also so interesting about 1824 and 1820 is you have all these other complementary factors, this dynastic issue with John Quincy Adams, this uh, potential issue of the corrupt bargain and what's Henry Clay doing and how's this all going to play out and what is the res- what is the four-year response from Jackson supporters and how do they situate that? And it's almost as if a modern media campaign comes out before a modern media existed in order to position all of that. Really, really fascinating times. So the issue of contemporary political dialogue and how coarse it generally speaking is, um, which camp would you be in? Is it mostly always been that way in one form or another? Is it particularly acute right now? Where do you come down on that? Somewhere in between mostly been that way, but exacerbated by the news cycle, the 24-hour news cycle, and the ability to pick up our phones at any time and get content. So, I mean... John Adams and Thomas Jefferson said awful things about one another, like truly Reg- hideous regularly things about, you know, so much so they didn't talk for like 15 or 20 years. And if they lived in a world of social media, I mean, like it would have been identical to, to what, what we think today is like. But there is something to me, and, and I don't do research in this field, so I'm kind of speaking a bit, a bit off the cuff here, that none of us have the ability to shut off. Or if we do, we have to intentionally do it. Because every news station now is on a 24-hour cycle. There's always the need to generate content. And certainly that's true with, with social media. So I think, yes, it's always been that way. But we live in an environment that has exacerbated the worst aspects of it and probably buried the, good, the goodness of people in a way. Can you imagine Jefferson's Twitter game with his penchant for writing and for his command of the language and vocabulary? He, he, he would have been a sure follow. What do you think? Has it always been this way or is it just particularly acute now? I think I'm going to come down somewhere in the middle as well. Um, this goes back to, okay, yes, we, as just noted, we have this history of people saying awful things about each other, of people having, I mean, this even erupts into violence at points in time. Um, it's hard to say that we haven't had contentious political disagreement or uh, what we might call polarization between different groups or sides in the past. At the same time, I think that some of this has trickled down more into our everyday lives because of social media. It's actually it's interesting that you say that you haven't done a lot of research in this area because a fascinating thing about the effects of social media on politics is it's so rapidly evolving and changing. It's really hard to tell from those who do research in this area what exactly has been happening. And it's really hard to disentangle how is this different from the past? You know, if you're looking into something like the spread of misinformation, well, we've always had misinformation. So how much of an effect does it have today that it spreads? Or if we're looking at things that people say that are maybe not true misinformation, but very scandalous or exaggerated and sensationalized, that's always happened again. But then how much impact is there from the fact that that's constantly available to us, that it's filtered to us in a way that intensifies that and purposefully drives us to look specifically at that content and that we are basically always getting involved in this. I do think there is a little bit different, at least in terms of the lifetimes of most of us who might be listening to this podcast of, I would say it's maybe not that we are in a distinctly different era of that we've never had any kind of discord like this before, but I would certainly say that it's of a different nature perhaps than in past decades. So it's not more, it's just different. And I think in particular, a lot of the research lately has been on things such as not just disagreeing with the other side, but active dislike for 
the other side um, and making assumptions about them that may be incorrect or sensationalized based on the information that you see on the 24-hour news cycle or social media. Yeah, the old the old saw that you could um, holler at each other all day long and then go have a beer with each other afterwards, you know, sort of like the old um, cartoon where the uh, two antagonists at the end of the day clock out and they walk in with their lunch pail and the next day they go back after it again. It's interesting, though, that now personality seems to be quite important in politics. There are periods of American history where personality wasn't quite as important, at least on the national level. I'm thinking of the late 19th century, where um, an awful lot of elections occurred at the national level, and party and position seemed to be really important, and personality didn't. And then, of course, throughout the 20th century, certain personalities were so captivating and were so critical— and some of those personalities were aligned really with party. What do you think now? Do you think these personalities are really aligned with party? Are they really all about, in some sense, I can continue to increase my own power and my own reach, and I will drag the party along with me, but perhaps personalities is as important, if not more important, than party? I think this is an interesting question. Um, there, there has been this kind of theory about uh, what we call the rise of candidate-centered politics, which is the idea that it used to be, okay, the party picks who their candidates are rather than people run for office saying they are part of this party and then make appeals to the public to vote for them, maybe specifically rather than the party. Um, and I think we probably think of this as a really contemporary thing, but the theory kind of even goes back to maybe like the 1980s. Um, and so basically what we have today is we have more ability, you're correct, for people to go in and say, I'm part of this party and I'm running as the candidate and kind of center the focus on themselves. At the same time, we often see those candidates then go and vote with their party, support that party's positions, and not necessarily lead to massive change in what their party stands for or what voters they attract. So I think that that would be the one thing is, I don't know if they've completely reshapen the parties around themselves, even if perhaps they have shaped them a little bit. Thoughts on personality over uh, party? Yeah, it certainly feels that there is a direction in politics that knows everything that's being done is being recorded. Everything that's being said is being filed away somewhere that can be used again in a 15-second TikTok or in a one-minute tweet. And that does impact, you know, the idea that you're being watched, I think, does impact our behavior. Actually, I think there's a whole <laughs> theory of soci or the psychology that says, says that. Podcast. Yeah, that's a different podcast and way outside of my area of specialty. But, but I noticed, and again, this is just an observation, that it seemed like every single uh, uh, senator that questioned uh, Ms. Brown-Jackson um, during the uh, judicial proceedings for her nomination were doing it to put it in a one-minute campaign ad. Um, and I've never, I've never thought, th I mean, I've thought, that's, I've thought that about some people before, but the idea that a, that, that a, a legal and political proceeding, you're supposed to learn something, right? And that when I look at Senate proceedings and House proceedings now, I'm not sure how much I'm learning anymore about the people being questioned or interviewed or about the questions that the senators or the, the, the congressional members are asking themselves. Again, knowing that every single thing we do now is being filed and recorded and, you know, can be used for us or against us. I think historians wrestle with this some, and I, I'm happy to be corrected, but my guess is political scientists do too. And who's the tail and who's the dog here? Is the personality 
um, and the party shaping the people and the preferences of the people or the people rising up, making their voice known and reshaping the party and the candidates. It's interesting to think of it in a larger context is at least from the perspective of historians, you know, our perception is that the parties seem to change all at once. And then after they're really changing, we look back and we see all the signs. Oh, yeah, this was happening. This happened this election four years ago. This happened in this number of states 10 years ago. We should have seen it's coming, but but we often we don't. Do you think we could be in a significant moment of party realignment right now? Uh, would you expect the parties to sort of continue to echo similar positions? I'm thinking foreign policy now is one potential example, uh, as well as trade policy is one particular example of the parties maybe not exactly in line with where they were 10 or 15 years ago. I think that I like that you bring up the example of trade policy because I'm going to give some reasons. I don't think that the party's in a complete realignment but I think that this is a particularly good example to focus on. Um, and when we talk about party realignment, often what we see is if we go back and we look at those historical realignments, you're exactly correct. You can see the trends kind of leading up to it. But then often what you see is evidence of what we often refer to as a critical election. And in these elections, you see people who used to support one party suddenly support another party. Maybe not all of them, but a massive amount uh, compared to the past. And we haven't actually seen much of that in recent years. So as much as we talk about changes in the party or realignment in the party, most people who voted Democratic in 2020, voted Democratic in 2016, voted Democratic in 2012, and so on and so on, and vice versa with the Republican Party. Um, there isn't much change from who a person votes for from election to election to election, like we might see if we went back to these prior realigning elections in like the 30s or 60s. Now, what I would say, though, is, okay, I do think, though, there is some evidence of changes to maybe at least fundamental aspects of the parties and who is supporting them that maybe then eventually when we're looking back on this in a few decades, we will see, oh, well, there was all the evidence that we were leading up to the realignment. Um, so, for example, if you look at trade policy, there would be the past conventional wisdom that the Republicans are more the party of free trade and the Democrats are more the party of trade protectionism. And then we see voters who are maybe upset with free trade policies then moving more towards support for the Republican Party. Um, but actually, I saw, I, I don't think this was published yet, but I saw a paper at a conference where a person showed that after um, uh, former President Trump had left office, that a lot of Republicans kind of changed their mind back on trade policy once there wasn't this constant media cue of, okay, here are the things that he is saying about trade policy happening. And so I, this gets back to the question, too, about is the personality shaping the politics of the party or vice versa? Uh, I think on particular issues, it can perhaps have an impact, but then people might return back to their fundamentals whenever they're not thinking about this as a particularly acute issue that's constantly on the top of their heads and that they're hearing maybe competing discourse on, even from people they trust within their party. What do you think about realignment? Could we be in the middle of something or is it too too impossible to know? I think I largely agree with, with Dr. Kaufman on this question, and I would include immigration as another mm -hmm. potential kind of issue that you could identify. That said, if you look at some kind of demographic changes, in other words, who who are the types of voters that are voting for Democrats now, uh, and who are the types of voters voting for Republicans? We, you know, it's it's virtually identical if we look at African American voters, right? There hasn't there hasn't been a, a great deal of change over the last thirty years. Women with college degrees. Uh, have dramatically uh, increased in favor of Democrats in the last just like 10 years. Um, white men without college degrees, we see a shift there as well, okay? So 
if and this is the chicken egg like the causal like what's the causal direction here like if the demography of the the party is changing will they kind of attach themselves to the issues that their changing electorate is 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 moving towards or is the party moving in directions that these electorates are 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 liking and so you know i can certainly think of a, a few issues that i have in my mind that that might be attractive to you know women with college degrees or that might be attractive to 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 you know working class men without college degrees and, and, and why they might be motivated to, to vote one way or the other. So I, I, I think Dr. Kaufman is largely right about this. If you were to, to put on the table here 10 policies and, and get me to guess whether Republicans supported or, or didn't support that policy or Democrats supported or didn't support that policy, I'd be able to get like 90% of them and so would you and so would you. and <laughs> So, yeah. So you guys read and you study and you write and you teach – about politics and political culture all the time. What's something that the ordinary person who doesn't have the depth of understanding or the expertise you have really doesn't know about politics? What's something that you would love people to stop and say, oh, I never knew that? I think for me, I actually try to teach about this because I think it's so important, is we are in this era where we talk about all of the political discord that we have. But for the average person, we might not have that much disagreement. So the average, we can say, okay, well, we just said, okay, we could look at these policies and say 90% of them are what the Republican Party stands for, 90% are what the Democratic Party stands for, or rather we could say that with 90% accuracy. Um, but a lot of people, they hold kind of a mixture of views or they hold pretty moderate views on things. We tend to assume about our uh, fellow members of society, okay, well, they believe that. And so therefore they believe every single thing that their party believes, and they probably hold the most extreme version of it. This is one of the things that I think fuels that kind of dislike of the other side sometimes. But if you actually ask these two people, regardless of what their party label is, what do you think? You might be kind of surprised to see that maybe there's at least a few issues where they hold the same view as you or where their view is a lot less extreme than you assume. And I think a really telling thing is uh, recently in North Carolina, the main party registration, so like the party in quotes that most people belong to, is actually no party at all. Um, a lot of people really don't align with one of the two major parties, although a lot of those people still vote for the same party election after election after election, even if they register unaffiliated. But um, I do think that we need to remember that for most people, they're not some kind of extreme partisan who's just out there parroting the views that you might hear in the sensationalized news. Yeah, most folks are just trying to get their work done, trying to take good care of their families and uh, tune in and watch the Philadelphia Phillies every once in a while. <laughs> That's certainly true. In alignment with what Dr. Kaufman said, I would say, uh, well, two things, actually. One, when Congress wants to get things done, they just do those things. They gave $1.3 billion to Ukraine, like, didn't bat an eye, no problem. Uh, they We passed three COVID relief bills in a matter of nine months. Different president, you know, different congressional alignments. We just did it. We bailed out banks. Okay, we, we bailed out the auto industry. We can do anything we want, anytime we want to do it. Okay, no matter what the debt says or the trillion, you know, whatever the debt clock is, we just do those things. And I think that's one thing that is uh, not known to many Americans because, in a way, our political system by design is going to create friction. But there are moments in time when we simply just do things after 9 11 during the recession, during COVID, because we care deeply about Ukraine or have a lot of antipathy towards Russia, we do those things quickly. Uh, the one thing I would also say is the Electoral College is insane. Um, and I don't, I don't mean that in terms of like, um, 
I, I understand it historically why it exists, but I don't think most Americans realize all the bits and pieces it takes to get from uh, voting for the person you want to be president, that person winning the second, you know, the first Tuesday in November, and then them eventually standing on a podium the third week in January. And I think January 6th was a wake-up call for a lot of people, not not necessarily all the events that happened, but just the idea that it really wasn't over until this formal thing happened. And even though that thing is relatively formal and has typically been a rubber stamp, if it isn't done, then the president can't take office. I don't know that people understand fully how many times the Electoral College and the popular vote have been different and that it ended in an outcome that didn't necessarily um, cause this potential stoppage. I'll ask you to put on your prognostication hat for for a minute, uh, maybe make a prediction or two. 20 years from now, and that's kind of the way historians think, we're certainly much slower to get around to our conclusions um, than some other discipline groups. What do you think people will say about the first couple of decades of the 21st century in terms of political culture? Will we've made sense of it by then? So we're talking about from 2000 on? Sure. Yeah, so for me, it's 9-11, the recession, and COVID. I may be skipping the, the election of President Obama, right? Those are, those are the four things that immediately kind of pop into my head. So 9-11, it sort of reshapes how we think about what, what foreign policy is in the United States. Because for 10 or 11 years, there was a bit of a lull, right? The, the conclusion of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And America was in this end of history moment, as sometimes people talk about it. And 9-11 was a wake-up call. This idea that not only could we be attacked, but that attacked by pr- presumably, you know, someone or something that's not even a country. That's a terrorist. What does that even mean? Um, I think the recession, because it kind of, again, sort of popped some of the optimism that people had about the the economy. The idea that it was just going to, a never-ending uh, stream of goodness and all of a sudden, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14 percent unemployment in some places, right? People lost their homes. The election of President Obama, it's a huge one, right? Because this, to some people, to many people, was a, a fantasy. The idea that someone other than a white male could be elected office is so, so his election, regardless of what you think about his politics, was immensely, immensely important. And then COVID, which is, I think, we're still sort of wrestling with because uh, it was almost exactly 100 years since the last pandemic the last worldwide pandemic, I should say. And uh, we didn't handle it well. We didn't handle it always poorly, but we didn't handle it well either. Uh, And we're still wrestling with the uh, outcomes of all that. So those are the four things that pop into my mind. And all of those things, there's fertile ground for people who would say, there's nothing really new happening. It's just a recycling of something that always happened before, or to take the other position that there really is significant and lasting change in the, the world and the country is uh, forever different. Any thoughts on what we'll think back about? Yeah. um, So I was thinking a little bit more conceptually than event-based, but those are such important events. And I think I would list all the same ones. Um, But kind of coming back to my point about how it's really difficult to assess how much impact things like social media and the 24 hours news cycle and the spread of um, very highly partisan or highly exaggerated or even misinformation being spread across those platforms has impacted us, I hope that maybe in 20 years we'll understand what the full nature of that impact was and maybe some ways to attenuate its more negative effects, if at all possible. 
I'd also like to see um, if we're bringing up examples like, okay, well, we've always seen an institution like the Electoral College work in a certain way. And not, not just the Electoral College, but other kinds of different aspects of American politics that we have like that. I would like to kind of see a historical perspective on any time that those were sort of pushed to their limit, like with January 6th, how well did they hold or did we do any reforms um, in line with that? And then what was the impact? Did we, uh, kind of going back to your question about what would we adopt from another country? Did we adopt something from another country if there was a problem that occurred or did we stick with what we were doing and it ended up working out for the best for us? Um, I, I would just like to be there whenever we make this determination. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll we'll come back for a 20th anniversary uh, commemoration of this podcast and talk about it then. Let's move into our lightning round and move off of politics and just uh, let the listeners l- l- learn a little bit more about uh, you and in your experiences. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, this will sound very ironic coming from people who know me, but just because you can do something, it doesn't mean you have to. Um, And so I think it's really important to remember to uh, prioritize the things that you take on and do what's important to you. Um, And believe it or not, I do occasionally do that. Um, But uh, I think, you know, there's been times in my life where I was pursuing something because somebody said, this is a great opportunity for you. And I would never want to discourage ambition in people or not taking advantage of good opportunities. But you don't have to take every single good opportunity. You should focus on those that are most important to you so that you can be most successful at them, I, I think was the best for me. That's great advice. Joseph? Yeah, it's Dr. Kaufman's chair. She doesn't always take that advice herself, <laughs> but uh, that's why I laugh. My grandmother, right before I left for college, said to get up every Sunday morning and go to church. And, and I've taken that piece of advice and sort of expanded it to, to mean this, you know, which is save some time every week for a quiet meditation. Save some time every week f- to just get up, to, to get, take a shower, get dressed in something that you know, you, makes you feel good about yourself. And if that's church for you, um, or if that's meditation or, or whatever that might be, you know, take that time each week for yourself. And so um, I, I basically followed my grandmother's advice to, to this day, really, to kind of have that one day, that one hour of one day, really, to dedicate myself to something other than my job or, you know, my hobbies, wherever the case may be. So, So building on that, what's the most interesting place you've ever been to you've ever traveled to so this is going to be easy for people that that know me but uh sarama which is an island off the coast of estonia um which you can only get to by ferry and um it's just it's a it's a deeply beautiful beautiful place that's been kind of unmolested in a way by um by the world so the soviets tried their hardest actually (laughs) to destroy it but uh, weren't successful so to me it would be sarama island how about you, Chelsea? I'm going to go with uh, Centralia, Pennsylvania, which is a town which has had an underground coal mine fire burning there for decades, and the town had to be abandoned uh, because of this safety concern. Um, and you used to be able to go there, and there was a roadway that went through the town, and people had painted all this graffiti on it. And um, so you could go and walk around and look at all this, and it was just really a sight to behold, just kind of this organic accumulation of people's art over time, I guess, and commemorations of visiting there. Uh, in 2020, because of the safety concerns, they covered this all up with dirt, and you can no longer go there. Oh, wow. um, so it's sort of doubly abandoned at this point. I had no idea. I've learned a couple of things already. What's the best meal you've ever had? Well, whenever you send us these questions, it said the best food. So this is, well, maybe go, it's y- a meal. Yes, go for um, that. Go for so food. I'm going to go with uh, peanut butter cup ice cream. <laughs> That's my favorite thing. That's cool. For me, it's always going to be oysters on the half shell. 
So any place where they're fresh and and the month ends in R, I think is the recommendation. That would that would be it for me. What a great discussion with two incredibly informed, smart, and um, great communicators. Thank you both very much for being here and join us the next time for the next episode of Wilson in Maine. Special thanks to Wingate University Marketing and Events. Theme music by Daniel Friedel. The views and opinions expressed by any individual during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of Wingate University. (laughs) 